Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. A few weeks ago, I did a mirrored show with Alex Sakaris of the Skeptical Podcast, and we talked about a lot of issues in our scientific worldview, how we both have problems with materialism, and uh, we we sort of um, agreed on a lot of things, but we had a point of departure uh, it, concerning whether this change that is in the air, this change towards a world of greater spirituality, consciousness, openness, whatever, whatever title we want to put on it, whether this uh, evolution is leading to personal transformation or whether it's leading to world transformation. And I tend to think it's leading to the world part of it, and Alex said that it leads to personal transformations. <laughs> but we both agree that whatever this transformation is, it does begin with ourselves. Socrates famously said, know thyself, and I think that that is necessary before one tries to change anything else. And this is where the concept of self-help comes into the picture. And then I wonder with that term, is there any other kind of help than self-help? Is there other people help, non-self-help? We know there's coaching, but coaching I don't think really works unless the student is receptive and ultimately helps themselves. The bookstores are filled with self-help, personal transformation, empowerment books of all sorts shapes and sizes the magic of thinking big the seven habits of highly effective people the t the, the list goes on and on and I'm lucky today to have a have as a guest one of the leaders in this field she's been doing it for over 20 years she's written a number of books in the area and I think today we're going to learn something about really personal transformation with some real down-to-earth lessons and tips. Her name is Laura Berman Fortgang. She is a nationally renowned speaker, life coach, and career strategist. She helps individuals, small businesses, corporations forge new directions and deal with change. She's a Huffington Post blogger, which I guess a lot of people are are doing these days, but it's not easy to be a blogger there. She's a, a media perennial, appearing on such shows as Oprah, CNN, MSNBC. She's the author of a number of books, including Living Your Best Life, The Little Book on Meeting, The Prosperity Principles, Take Yourself to the Top, and she's just published a revised version of one of her first books, if not her first book, called Now What? 90 Days to a New Life Direction. Laura, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I think that, like anything else, we're all looking for direction, and it's always good to have a plan 
And so this is where books like yours come in to play. But I want to sort of set the tone here with something from, from my personal uh, experiences that I think might be relevant here. And that is, I am a lawyer, as, as I've said in the past, and I recently went through a jury research uh, process. And one of the things I learned from that is that people tend to look at things only from their own perspectives. And that you could have a fascinating new idea, but people who you are talking to can only relate to that new idea through their own lens, their own histories. And that leads me to ask you the basic question, which is how did you personally get into this field? What led you to be a life coach? Well, I was someone who pursued a dream right out of college, which was to get myself on Broadway. And I lived in New York City and was doing that whole thing to the point of feeling like, ooh, you know, this could be a long road. I'm not where I want to be yet. What else am I going to do? And I called an old friend, an old mentor, who turned out to be have become a coach, and I'd never heard of such a thing, but I was a client first. And I transitioned into teaching presentation skills in companies, which was, you know, a very sensical thing for a performer to do, but quickly realized that it took more access to the person to get them to give a good speech um, and realize I really wanted to have the same training my mentor had had. So I was one of the first 16 people in the U.S. to go through formal training, and we were the same 16 who helped to found the International Coach Federation, which now is in 80 countries around the world. So um, it's been, you know, in from the ground floor kind of thing, and it was just a progression of listening to my own intuition and so, you know, and it wasn't all easy, you know, definitely doing something that no one had ever heard of had its ups and downs. Well, one, one of the things that, that really comes across uh, in, your, in your book, uh, Now What?, is the way that you, you have to sort of set that, that vision out there, that, that goal, but it's, it's not always... Um, succinctly or clearly defined sometimes I mean you, you talk a lot about the the contrast between intuition and linear thinking and a lot of us like me we tend to think logically like there's five steps you have to take in order to be rich or something but mm -hmm. but what what did you what have you learned about this goal-setting process about what how it really works well I mean we can speak you know generally about goal setting is the more specific you you are like making more money is not really a goal right increasing my income by 10,000 a year or a month that's the goal because then we can break it down into pieces that can make that happen so that but that's very linear when in the context of my now what book I'm talking about career transition and figuring out what you want to do next and that runs a very non-linear parallel in the sense that it's not just, okay, decide, write your resume again and go out and find a job search. What we're dealing with now are people li working longer, living longer and having to work longer. You know, the threat of there not being uh, social security or Medicaid down the road and, you know, people's companies are finding ways to reduce their pensions. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that are going to keep people uh, reinventing work for longer. Um, and 
there's no rules for that. So when there's rules, you can be very linear and logical. When there are no rules for something new, you have to go with your gut. So what the Now What system helps you do is to figure out, you know, what are those natural inclinations, not just things that you like or that you're passionate about, but things that are all throughout your story that really reflect who you are, and then let's write a resume around that. So most of us are still very mired in the five sensory, very linear, I have studied this, I am qualified to do that, these are the jobs I can get. But as more people are reinventing and also more people looking for more meaning in what they do, just having a job isn't enough anymore. We want it to be meaningful. We have to get down to kind of an essence of ourselves and look at who we want to be more than what we're going to do. Because once you get a, chance, a sense of who does my, my job allow me to be, do I like that? Am I making an impact? Do I make a difference? Am I making a contribution? Is it meaningful to me? If we can answer all those pieces, then we can find something out there that fits that. But most people do it the other way around. They want to fit themselves in the in the box of whatever jobs are available. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I think that this this is where things are are a little different. And I I think we need to start with the with the major sort of um, idea here, which which revolves around this search for meaning. And this has been, as you know, a long-time quest of most humans, most, most historic writing, including probably spirituality, philosophy, and then on and on. Even scientists now are starting to ponder the, que the search for meaning. The real question well, is, how is that different in today's day and age? We see such a pressure on people to, to make it, as you say, to plan for retirement, to, to pay the bills, raise a family. But it seems like undergirding this is this, is this persistent search for meaning. And I know that a lot of people who come to you probably have this, this urge. But what do you think about this? Is this something that you think is universal or you think that's a symptom of our society? Or, or how, do you, how do you look at this search for meaning that we seem to always be, be um, troubled with? Well, I do agree with you that it's you know, centuries and probably thousands of years old. Yeah. As, we, you know, as and even when people named gods in the sky, you know, that's looking for meaning and, and answers to everyday life. So, um, you know, talking like Zeus and pre you know mythology all the way up to religion and beyond so meet the search for meaning's always been there but if you think at modern life meaning you know turn of the century and this new millennial millennium um it it just seems that it's infiltrated into our everyday life meaning it's not just for the thoreau who wants to go you know right. leave society and sit on the edge of a pond and think and it's not just for the person who wants to get off the rat, get out of the rat race. It seems to have infiltrated our everyday life, and I think that's what's different. Um, I also think that humans evolve. So if I think of my grandfather's generation, who was an immigrant to the United States at 17 years old, the idea of meaning or being happy at work was just that you had a way to make money and put food on the table. My father, next generation, was the first to be educated in his family line. And he had the 1960s version of happy at work, which was, you know, have the job, have the 2.4 kids, have the house, you know, but he wasn't even happy. But, you know, yeah, that was the yeah. definition of happy. Yeah. And I think 
the definition of what work should provide now is like the more we have, the more we want. And I, and it's but it's switching from the more we have materialistically is not so much the point anymore. And it seems to be that the people have reached that materialistic point, not that everyone's wealthy, but they go, oh, well, this was supposed to be it, you know, the house, the kids, and they don't feel satisfied. So our next level of evolution has become having work actually be satisfying and meaningful. Yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was a, a, a step forward that you made in your book. You mentioned about how probably our generation focuses on the the ethic of raising of of raising a family and pay, and taking care of your family sort of outward focused and the newer generations are getting beyond that and they are looking for for more pervasive meaning in their lives i mean for, I mean, for example you know i more and more uh, you know, I tell people, well, I have a job so I could afford to do what I really want to do. And and that's that's probably not the best way to do it. Uh, <laughs> the more I think well, about it. <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish no, your thought. No, no, that was my thought. I mean, that that's probably, it, that, that may be a transition to something, which is why I'm probably a good student of, 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 a, of, a, of, a, of a capable coach, but I would be a challenging subject. But anyways, um, you know, you know, th- there is this transition going on, and I, I would assume you believe it's a healthy transition. Oh, I do. I think it's a healthy transition. You know, would I rather see my kids be unhappy to have all the trappings of life, or would I rather they be happy and, you know, live a little simpler? I, I want the latter. You know, I, I'd rather have them be happy. And, you know, I'm, I'm 50 ish. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's infiltrated my generation. But the millennials as we call them, you know, we say they're slackers and they don't want to work hard, but the truth is the highest value for them is that they work someplace that contributes. Not that everybody wants to work at a nonprofit organization, but they want to know if they work for let's say Zappos, you know, selling shoes that Zappos also has something philanthropic that they do with the money they make or that they create a culture where people uh, are really inspired to be their best and to grow. So young people want to work, but they want to work somewhere where they're not sucking up the resources of the environment for no reason. They want to know they're adding to the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and I think that that's pervasive. I think that's going to be the future. And therefore, those of us that are older, still working in the workplace, we're also hitting the wall and saying, oh my gosh, you know, if I have 25 more years to work, what do I want it to look like? Yeah, there's a quote from your book that I wrote down here that is, is along those lines that says, you will shift from the singular focus of you and your mm-hmm. goals to the more global reach of how your life impacts the world for the better. And I think that that is actually, that's, that's got to be a good thing. And I you know, the whole thing with McDonald's right now, the front and center, I mean, not exactly some kind of earth-shattering development, but it's pretty amazing that there is this rebellion against McDonald's, leaving aside that the quality of the food, 
and the taste right. of the food that the public, their customers, want them to be more environmental friendly, more healthy. And it's, it's, it shows what this, what this uh, sense is having in the marketplace when people when incredibly successful companies like McDonald's are starting to hear and of course it's just one little small step when uh McDonald's changes the type of types of uh of um chickens they buy and the type of chemicals that their chickens can be treated with i mean it's a very very small step but but it, it's got to be a good thing it it also uh is a line and i don't know if you if you've read up on I think there's a woman, Carol Gilligan, um, along with Ken Wilber. They, you know, they talk about the, the, um, the ascending needs of the organism that you move from your individual to the community to national, global. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a evolution here, um, and a lot of this talk is yeah. in the touchy-feely care category, but it, it, it is real, I think. And I, I think, do too. <laughs> I think I think it's real. I I, ha, I I don't know. Do you think that this is what's going on? That we're actually, quote unquote, evolving, is uh, in consciousness or maturity, whatever term you want to use. It sounds more scientific to you. Point is, do you think that we are really uh, this 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 millennial trend or the trend of young folks to want to be more? open to global transformation. Do you think that this is really aligned with some kind of evolution of consciousness that that is under that we're undergoing here? Oh, I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I I saw a precipitous shift in consciousness and in the in the speeding up of it right after 9/11. I live in the New York area. And um, I, you know, a lot of devastation, a lot of loss, a lot of loss of the sense of safety and innocence that a lot of people had. And also, you know, there was a financial component to 9-11. And I, I there for a moment thought, oh, my gosh, my luxury business of where, you know, people, it's quite optional if you want to have a better life, you know, yeah. um, is could disappear due to this. And instead, four days after 9-11, my phone was ringing off the hook with people saying life is too short, anything can happen. I, I've got a, I, I've been unhappy at work. I don't need to do this anymore. I need to find something else. I want to take the back burner, put it on the front burner. I saw this quickening yeah. of people's awareness of the, of how much they have to give, the preciousness of life, and that it's not worth suffering um, through this you know, through living our modern lifestyle when it could all go away tomorrow, unforeseen. So I have seen that only keep going, you know, not the, the acceleration has slowed down, but I've, I, I mean, I'm almost speechless, even though it's been over a decade because I, I had done a decade of work before that and I hadn't seen the same awareness and evolution as quickly as it happened after 9-11. Yeah, this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking to Laura Berman Fortgang, the author of Now What? 90 Days to a New Life Direction. And we're talking about the the transformation that 9-11 had in the way people prioritize their goals. 
And the, the reason why I, I mention that is that in, in many cases, in my own mind, we tend to view some of this, I'm going to call it new spirituality for the, for the time being, as okay. being some kind of outlier, some kind of mystical concept. But what makes it real to me is when people like you talk about the new generation and about the needs and about what happened after 9-11. And to me, it's important to keep this all real. And when we see more and more people wanting to wanting to um, get more out of their lives, wanting to pursue worldly pursuits or worldly impacts as opposed to, to just personal personal um, goals, I think that I think that says a lot. And and to me, there's so much out there, Laura, along these lines. I think the, the, the cat's out of the bag. I think we're heading sort of we're barreling down this road here where um, we know that there is going to be some kind of of change and it could be gradual it could be nonlinear who knows who knows what it's going to be but but uh, I think this is all for the better um, now I want to get a little more practical here you wrote your mm-hmm. book about 10 years ago and then you revised it what what did you learn but in that 10 years what what if what if what changes did you have to make to the book if any um well to call it a revise and updated edition i legally had to change 30 (laughs) percent so there was one context but i it was my request to my publisher that we update it and revise it because i've actively been using now what 90 days to new life direction with clients for this last 10 years and I train other coaches to use it so it's not just my own little backyard experiment I have 500 other coaches who've used this program with however many people they've touched and to just get back time after time the responsiveness of people to being led through a process that gets you out of your resume and out of your linear qualifications and into understanding what contribution you can make, um, you know, and again, not running away like Thoreau to do it, you know, you're, you can stay in your own world and probably still pay the mortgage, Um, you know, so to put people through this process that seems to be more and more in demand because our, our, our schools, our colleges, our alumni associations, our outplacement people, our recruiters, they're still trying to get us to fit into these boxes that our resume says we fit in and yet there are industries that have disappeared in the last 10 years there's technology that's replaced a lot of us in the last 10 years and there is no precedence for how do you figure out what to do if what you've always been trained to do may not even exist anymore yeah yeah there there definitely has to be some some recipe here and one of the things that's nice about your book is that you have this 90 days in here and I'd like you to talk about what the 90 days means. I mean, how you came up with it, first of all, and, and, and where you see the power of the 90 days. Sure. What's great about the 90 days, and funny enough, this came up after 9-11 because all my travel work stopped as the world stopped traveling, and I said I could commit to clients for 90 days. Let's see what could happen in 90 days. So what happened in 90 days, which resulted in running the Now What book about it, 
is that in 45 days or so, people would get clarity, and in 45 days more, we would start heading on a transition plan for that. The, the set period of time almost works by power of suggestion. We have 90 days. It's going to happen in 90 days, and, it, and most of the time it does. So it was the confining of the time that started getting the results. So just even think about, you know, if you have to write reports for work or if you went, if you were in college at one point, you know, if you had three months to write a paper, when did you start writing the paper? The day before. Most of us, yeah, the day before, three weeks before, right? right? So we work better in the confines of a time frame. So just the 90-day period in itself creates a time frame that I have seen you know, work and I'd say 80% of the time. And then the second part of the 90-day process working is that it's then broken up into 12 pieces that you need to look at. It's not, um, you know, so open-ended. You know, when, we, when we're trying to add a, an exploration time or a job search on top of a full life, it doesn't get the attention it needs. So if you say I'm going to carve out, you know, a total of two hours a week over the course of seven days and, and sit with this book or sit with the exercises or sit with this, you know, getting on the internet and researching, it happens. I mean, one of my, one of my mantras is one thing a day. Yeah. One thing a day has to happen towards this transition. So the confine of the time helps. And what I guide you to do during that time is to look in different places. Like I don't ever look at people's resume until they're to the other side when they have to find the work. Uh, most people are like, oh, nice to meet you. I want you to know about me. Here's my resume. No, I don't want to see your resume. I ask people to write me a life story. And in the book, we, uh, I guide you to look at your life story through three lenses. What are some longstanding threads that go throughout your whole story? And it doesn't have to be just about your interests or your passions or whatever. It can be about patterns in your life that start to show us where you made decisions and why. Then we look for driving motivators. Like most of us made a vow in our young lives. I will never be like my dad or I'll never be poor or I, you know, I'll show them, right? We, a lot of us make some of the most important pivotal decisions in our life based on a reaction to something else. And that takes us down a whole career path sometimes. And that might not be your genuine path. That was, that was a coping mechanism. So that's one place to look in the story for where you may have gotten off track. And the other is looking at interrupted dreams. Like, what did you dream of doing? And it's not that you're going to run back and become a ballerina at age 50, but it means ha- we haven't taught people, well, let's put it this way. I'd like to teach people how to unpack their dreams, meaning, okay, you, you dream, like for me, I dreamt of being an, an actor. And I tried that to not you know, to moderate success only. So why didn't my dream come true? My later in life interpretation, having worked with other people, was realizing that we glom onto a job title, a description, a dream, but we don't understand that it's really the impact we can make through that dream, that's the true dream. So for me as an actor, it wasn't just, oh, put me on stage, let me run a, learn a play role and you clap for me. That was fun. But it turns out that the real reason I wanted to be on stage was because I wanted to inspire people to think, to change, to be aware, to grow. And I can do all that in my job now. I could probably do that if I lived in a, if I lived, if I worked in a corporate setting, if I kept my eye on it. So I want to teach people how to open up what those machinations were of your youth and open it up to understand what the true value of them is today. 
So if you say recipe, like you said earlier, like, Laura, is there a recipe? The recipe is something from the past re-examined for what it truly means, rolled into your skill set and resume of the present equals your new future step. Mm. And the bottom line is it's not what you do that's going to make you happy. It's who your job allows you to be in the world. That's what makes you happy. And that's what our millennials are looking for, and that's what our mid-career adults need to reinvent to understand. Can you just elaborate upon that last point a little bit more? Um, this, this, it's, not, it's not what... The it's who it's, right yeah it's it's, it's, it's not what you what you do that's going to make you happy so it's not hey I'm a lawyer or I'm an actor or I'm a writer it's not it's not the job description or the status or the sh- the trappings itself of being any of those things it's who you get to be in the world by doing that like for example a lot of lawyers don't like what they do lawyers always joke there if there's people who've left the legal field they go hey I'm a recovering lawyer right, right? so. Right. But but if you opened that up and you didn't have to look at you didn't have to work for a firm where every billable moment is your goal, uh, or where you have to deal with the politics of the hierarchy and will you ever be a um, a partner? If you take all that away and you look at what you know, who does lawyer allow me to be? Right. You know, a, a lot of us think lawyers are you know shady or out to get you or you know, manipulative. But I'm sure there are a lot of people who were interested in law because they wanted to protect kids or protect family or protect the environment or they they love the use of words to make an argument. All those pieces can be used somewhere else. That's the who. Who does the job allow you to be? Someone who fights for justice, someone who persuades, someone who is influential. So those are the pieces we want to take from whatever your dream job was and move it forward with you. So I often use the analogy of an egg, like, you know, lawyer is the shell, actor is the shell. The shell stays the same until you crack it open. Once you crack it open, now if you can name what the yolk is, you know, the DNA of that yolk, you can make, it's malleable. You can do it in many things with it. If we keep it in the idea of like cooking an egg, once you open it, it can be scrambled, it can be soft-boiled, it can be fried, right? So now we have choices. But when we're just looking at, but I've been a lawyer, but I went to Harvard, but my parents will kill me that if I leave this, we can't move. When we open it up, it can be malleable. I see. I see. So there's, it seems like there's uh, two stages here, or among, among others perhaps, but one stage is sort of redefining uh what what you do or or what your what your job is and and we've seen it so much uh in the in the professional field and i think lawyers are a really good example doctors are a good a, example accountants is you know as you say actors where where you're fulfilling somebody else's image of what this profession is supposed to be and, and, and so by reorienting yourself and finding more meaning in that profession, that, right. that leads to greater fulfillment. Is that, is that correct? Is that? Yes, that's, that's my stance. That's okay. how I see it. Okay. That, okay. Then, um, your satisfaction goes up the more you get to be you. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> then, there, then there is this whole other area, and... You know, there's that famous book, What Color Is Your Parachute, which I actually never read. 
unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> unfortunately, never, I could never get past the first 10 pages. It just just didn't just didn't do it for me but mm-hmm. but anyways there was that famous you know and I had a funny feeling it had something to do about finding what you really wanted to do or be I think that's sort of what that book was about yes but yes. but a lot of your um, clients are looking for doing something else they're changing their careers into something that is more fulfilling so, yes. so are there are there two different perspectives here? In other words, is there is there not only redefining your current job, but also sort of gravitating towards something that may give you more fulfillment? Um, yeah. I mean, I'd say that um, sometimes people figure out that the, they can get more fulfillment right where they are that they just were, you know, stopped using some, some part of them that they, that they let go dormant and that just needs to come back and they can do it. If their job description does not allow that, um, then they often need to reinvent or do something else completely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Okay. Because, okay. So you've had so many clients over, over your career and your book, you talk a lot about, um, the stories and anecdotes why don't you give us an example of somebody that sort of illustrates some of the principles that you're talking about to put some sort of context on this? All righty. Well, we're going. I have. I mean, some of them are pretty outrageous, <laughs> and you know. And then, of course, we can, we have milder ones. But I'll give you an outrageous one. So there's a, a gentleman featured in the revised version of Now What, with also with a video, which, by the way, in the Now What book, there's QR codes on in each chapter that lead you to a video or to some kind of additional material online. And that was, that was fun for me after 10 years to be able to use some of the latest and greatest, you know, updated bells and whistles out there to make the book fun. So anyway, so there's a video of a man named Scott. Scott was a middle manager at a fast food chain um, corporation. He was in the supply chain, is it called? Food supply chain. So he didn't work at the restaurants or train at the restaurants. He was responsible for getting the food from one place to another and buying from vendors, etc. And this is a job that he wasn't really seeing much uh, upward mobility in that would interest him. He really loved the culture of that company and wanted to be maybe more on the training and development side so that he could express his ability to, you know, he just had a great impact on people and he wanted to be able to do it as part of his job. Um, And he basically determined as we worked together that he wanted to be in the training and development field and there didn't seem to even be room at his company to do that. So he started networking, you know, you know, who had, who owned a training company, who worked with training companies and, it, lo and behold, we, we were done with the discovery work, and the discovery work was this part about you know, his, his ability to impact people positively and finding a kind of work where he could do that. And so we had about a, a year separation before I hear, I hear from him again, and the next time I hear from him, he's the CEO of a $100 million company. And it's like, it's not very common for a mid-manager to become a CEO. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> um, but it, this is how it came to be, okay? So he was sharing his passion about people and culture and how companies 
and people need to behave in companies. And he would get invited to speak, um, still employed by the fast food industry. And he was invited to speak at one of his vendors. They were like, we just love your, you know, how you are, how you see organizations should work from the people side. Come talk to us about that. So he did a presentation to them about the company culture that he loves. And they took him to lunch and said, we really brought you here under false circumstances. You know, we are shopping for a CEO and we think that you'd be great because of how you see building a culture in an organization. Hmm. Now, again, very unusual, maybe not the smartest move on anybody's part, but he, of course, was delighted to accept the challenge to move up to a part of the country where he could be in nature, which um, is one of his high values that we discovered through our work together. So now he's been the CEO of this company for about a year and a half. He's seen it through some difficult things. He has certainly learned and grown the hard way on the job. But the piece that mattered most to him was making an impact on the people. So that now we're back together, working together again to be able to have him implement that side to the business. He spent a year and a half learning the business, getting it up to speed. They're profitable, doing some things, and now he wants to impact that side. But So there's one story of just someone getting so clear on what they had to offer that they they didn't even have to really go very far on a job search. They just had to keep finding opportunities to just be who they are. You know, and to share what he's passionate about, and it attracted him a job. So talk about woo-woo, right? Yeah. Nonlinear. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, so that's very nonlinear story. That one. Yeah. Well, you know, there's something that is coming out that's been more and more prevalent in many books. Whether it is a parapsychology book, whether it's a self-help book, or even Michael Shermer, who wrote the you know, the, the editor of Skeptic Magazine, this this issue of synchronicities. And, you know, we all have our different spin on it, but, it's, but, it, but it seems as if um, there's something to them. And you, and you talk about the role of synchronicities yourself uh, in your book. What, what, is your, what is your spin on synchronicities? Where do you think they fit into your work? Oh, I mean, I, me and the coaches that I train to use Now What?, we look for synchronicity. If if the synchronicities start appearing for our clients, we know that we've helped them get to the right place. Like that's almost more of a measure of our success than actually where they end up. Yeah. It's like we if we just find that people. I really believe that people most of the time have the answer as to what they want to do. They just don't have examples of how they would do it, or they're too afraid to admit it because it would mean leaving a secure thing, or they're afraid their family would have a problem with it. So uh, part of our job is to get it out of people. And once they speak the truth and and they see the life story process and they realize, gosh, everything I really want matches the blueprint, matches the who, matches what I want, and they allow themselves the permission to step out of the norm, so many times we see like it was like the whole universe was waiting for you to just get this already so that <laughs> things can align for you. The synchronicities sometimes are uncanny. Yeah. Oh, you know, and I, I had this, there's one guy in the book, too, who I've caught up with 10 years post and have his update in the book, but when he did the process with me, he was so freaked out that a synchronicity opportunity came up that he it took him 10 years to take advantage of it. He just could not believe that life yeah. could work that way. Yeah, this is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. 
I'm speaking with Laura Berman Bortgang, the author of many books, but including her new revised edition of Now What? 90 Days to a New Life Direction. And we're, and we're seeing the way synchronicities fit in to career paths and life paths as well. And I, you know, I think that uh, the Celestine Prophecy, which is one of the early quote-unquote New Age books, I think what that book did for a lot of people was to bring home sort of the richness, the magic of synchronicities, because what he says in that book, James Redfield, who you quote in your own book, is, mm-hmm. is that when you're in the flow of life, synchronicities will occur, and I, I just paraphrase that. So when you're in the flow of something, when something is right, these synchronicities occur, and I'll just you know, I've had all sorts of synchronicities, but, you know, I wrote a book, The Collapse of Materialism, and it took me a long time to write it. It took a lot of research, and I will say that the, my, whenever I had a research need, a question, I seemed to come upon the right book, the right magazine article, and things just appeared. And so I know yep. from personal experience that when you're on mission things seem to go with you. And this is part of the magic, I think, Laura, of what you do, I, it was, which is that there's, there seems to be, in some cases, a greater force at work here than just filling out resumes and sending <laughs> them out and hoping that someone calls you back. I mean, there's, which is, the way we, which is the way we were raised, when you think about yeah. it. You know, I mean, right now with the kids applying to colleges, I have a 16-year-old daughter and she's nearing the, you know, you fill it out and, and it's, it's all like mathematical or but it's it's really not things things just happen now uh, your your 90 day i want to talk a little bit more about the 90 days here because you 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 mentioned it earlier and i think it's great having deadlines um the inspiration of 911 is really interesting i like to have you sort of summarize the basic steps here Be, you know there's there's 12 weeks you have a chapter on each week you know, we're not going to have time to go through all the chapters, mm-hmm. but but there are certain big sort of segments to your steps, and and I like to have you just sort of summarize them, and then I'm going to circle back and ask you about some of the the ending points, the the, the backward goal setting I'm going to get to in the end because I think that's sure. really cool. But but why don't you just sort of you know for those who have not heard about the 90 days because I do think this is a a uh, real contribution this book makes. So why don't you just sort of Thank break you. it down for us a little bit here? Sure, I'll chunk it. Okay. You know, I, I do. Chunk. The first three chapters are getting you through any blocks to clarity, and I've basically determined that there's three major blocks to clarity. So if you come to the process like I really don't know what I want to do, or I've been, you know, you just can't focus on it. Um, I found there's three blocks of clarity. One is that we talk all the time about what we don't like and not enough about what we do want. So when you're in bed with what you hate all the time, that's all you see. That's one of the blocks. The second block is identity. We just, you know, if we identify as that lawyer and we had the Harvard education and the Yale graduate school and we just, you know, we just feel like we'd be a disappointment if we step out of that identity, that's another block. And even people who say, oh, I'm just a mom or I'm just a parent, that's an identity. So identity is a block. Third is our own beliefs. You know, oh, 
you know, I can't do that. I'm too old. Da, da, da. Those, so those are the blocks, and we work you through those. Chapter four and five, I call the turnkeys to the program because we look at that life story process that I talked about earlier where you really see I, sometimes I feel like I should call that career psychology because we you really understand why you've made the choices you've made in the past and then you get to choose whether you want to stay with those choices or choose new ones that's what the life story reveals and chapter five also a turnkey chapter is getting down to a sense of purpose and it doesn't have to be like this Mother Teresa Gandhi's type of purpose it's just understanding there's really something that you cause in the world when you almost make no effort. Like I call it your ripple, your ripple effect. What's your ripple effect? You walk in a room, what happens? <laughs> you yeah. know? And um, so then chapter six, seven, and eight get down to some practical things. Like how do you take this yoke that I talked about and, and put it into some other shell, some other packages, some other job descriptions? How do you choose which one? We give a litmus test based on your needs and values. You know, what do you care about most and what do you have to have to feel secure? And then the decision usually becomes clear. And now we got to deal with the money. If you notice, I put money eighth yeah. out of 12 weeks, yeah. not first. Because most people come in with money, pro you know, either money problems or money concerns. I can't do this. i got to pay for that. Blah, 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 blah. But the truth is, once you know who you want to be and how you can express it in the world, then tell me that you're going to let money get in the way. So that's yeah. eight. And then 9, 10, 11, 12 is, you know, some nuts and bolts. Um, but some of the nuts and bolts are more airy-fairy. Like, I I know they work, so I'm making fun of myself to say airy-fairy. But I ask people to write a fiction of how their new direction could come to be. That's not linear. That's nonlinear. And fiction is, I call, the tip of the iceberg of intuition. Like, it, it helps you start cracking the code on what's meant for you, that synchronicity thing. And when we tell, give people permission to write fiction, it doesn't have to happen. You're not, you know, so there's a freedom. And when people write from this freedom place, we often find great ideas in their fiction that we can actually put into steps. And then to the rest of it, we also look at support. What does support mean to you and who's supporting you? Often when you want to make a big change, the people you love the most are your worst supporters because you're upsetting the status quo. Yeah. You know, you're changing the life for everybody. And then that brings us to the last chapter, which you had a question about, of why the backwards goal setting. So should I leave well, that to you? Well, I, I want to talk about a couple things that, that sort of resonated with me. Uh, is, the, is the fiction writing, which I thought that was really helpful. And mm -hmm. this, to me, was sort of a very practical way to sort of break down barriers that we've been talking about. I mean, so many mm -hmm. people, and I think it's not as prevalent in, in our day and age as it has it was in the past, but it's still out there, which is following in your parents' footsteps kind of thing, or following mm -hmm. your parents' expectations of you, or your peer pressure, the societal pressure. But when you do that fiction writing, which is, you know, dreaming big, you know, envisioning uh, envisioning what you would really want to be with no uh, limitations. I thought that was really, really good because a lot of people probably harbor those dreams inside, but they don't articulate them, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So when, when you let people write fiction, again, we're not holding them to it being a truth. It's right. a permission to just express, and we learn a lot by letting ourselves write fiction. Yeah, and, and then that's that sort of tied into another, it could be another, how can I put this, um, 
fictional uh, standpoint, which is the as if, you know, imagine that you are that you are where you dreamed you would be. Um, I there I've seen that before in other in other in other books, but mm-hmm. this notion of of projecting yourself uh, into into having already achieved those goals, I think that is a really a cool thing. Could you just talk about that a little bit? The as if sort of mentality. Sure. Um, I mean, act as if I think I got from my acting years myself when yeah. I was an actor. You know, we'd say. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, so, and when I coach, sometimes I coach the actors in our in our town when they do the school plays, and I had one girl who was not quite fond of her leading man, and I said, <laughs> well, who's someone you do think is cute, you know, and she said Brad Pitt, and I said, you have to act as if this boy is Brad Pitt. Yeah. And so when you embody something based on a imagination or a memory, you're you're going to be in the present in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. So... In the book, I mentioned, okay, so if you acted as if you already were that writer, well, I'd own a laptop, and I'd have some place to work in my home. Or that's my writing studio, and I'd have this, and I'd have that. Well, great. Those are exactly the first things that need to happen now. You're right. Yeah. So that's how we use the act as if exercise. Um, uh, you know, do we always bring the, you know, act as if until it happens you know you've heard the term fake it till you make it sometimes that's one of my favorite that's one of my favorite fake it till you make it and yeah you know, i mean back in the acting days you know when someone says do you ice skate you say sure and then you yeah. go out and you learn how you know well, well how else do you how else do you grow i mean in my in my field uh you know i'm i'm an environmental lawyer but my practice extends beyond that because if i didn't stretch myself I would always be in one little cubby hole and, mm-hmm. and so it's sort of you're always I mean I think that that goes to 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 stretching I like the I like the open-minded sort of standpoint the unlimited sort of vision that goes with the with with the as if and the and the fiction writing now this backward goal setting, which I alluded to a couple minutes ago, I thought that was really cool because I haven't seen that one before, and I'm not sure how you came up with it. But why don't you talk about what? And I, I'm calling it backward goal setting. I'm not sure if you yeah. called it something else, but but why don't you talk about how you came up with it and maybe give us an example of how it how it works? Sure. Um... Well, by backwards goal setting, what we're talking about here is instead of saying, what's my first step? (laughs) Right. Right. It's kind of the same as the act as if, so that's where it came from is, well, if I say a year from now, I'm uh, living in India and I'm teaching English, then what had to happen at the nine-month point? Well, by then I better have my visa and I better have my, my immunizations and I better have you know, a place to stay. So when you follow that trajectory from the far point to today, your first step is going to be bigger and braver than if you said, well, what's my first teeny-weeny little step that I'm going to take today? And it also, again, nonlinear. When you ask the brain to do linear and logical, it's going to argue with you about what's safe and what's right and what's been done before. When you, um, ex- when you tease the brain and say, okay, it's already a year from now, and I'm there, so at nine months, this is what had to have happened, and at six months, this is what had to have happened. Your brain can't get into what's logical and, and 
and safe because you've already expanded past that. So that's that was the basis for creating it that way. And it's amazing how it, it really does build courage and encourages people to think bigger. Yeah, and I, I like the this this, this nonlinear thing because as you were talking, I, I always I come back to this conclusion that I've had, which is that nothing ever happens to me as I plan it out to be. Nothing, <laughs> nothing ever happens. It it's always something else that you didn't think about. It's it's as if it's as if the the universal goals are bigger than your little brain could could understand. And but but still, as you said in the beginning, there has to be this this sense, this follow your passion, follow your intuition. It's sort of I mean the the image in my mind is like this: you're you're in the dark, and you have this sense, and you're sort of you're sort of moving towards the light, but you really don't mm-hmm. know what's there. You just sort of follow different different paths, and and eventually you may wind up in a place. Um, that has a lot going for, or more going for it than you than you have in the present. Uh, th- there's also something here about moonlighting, which a lot of people moonlight. I moonlight in in my own way. I mean, a lot. It, what is what are some tips for the moonlighters? Well, the moonlighters, it's it's a great way to really reality test the thing that you're thinking about, you know, sometimes people have a fantasy about what they want to do and then you go and find out the reality of it is like, whoa, I don't want to do that. (laughs) You know, it looked great from the outside, but no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) So moon, you know, moonlighting allows you that freedom to not have to leave something secure to try something. And the tip would be to not be afraid to ask, you know, to ask strangers, to ask friends, to to say, you know, do you know somebody who does X, Y, or Z? Like, I, um, I I really don't have the intention to become a casting director, but I just have this intuition that I would love to sit in on some auditions because I just find it fascinating, and I like to see, you know, how people deal with the nerves and what kind of things are people doing now. And it, it just it inspires me. It also helps me in some other things that I do. So I called up an old casting director who used I used to know when they cast me and I was like you know oh gee we haven't talked in 20 years and I hope you don't mind me asking but they were all for it so my advice is just you know not to be afraid that you're you'd be amazed at how willing people are to help uh, especially when you're really not asking it's not like you're asking for a job you're just asking to moonlight you know yeah. or to try something or yeah. to study them or to mentor under them and um, you'd be amazed how much people enjoy interacting that way so. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think I think that's good because a lot of people may have a simplistic view of this uh, personal transformation process, and the simplest view is quit your job today mm-hmm. and devote yourself to what you really want to do. It's not that simple, right? I mean, that's that's the point. It's not that simple. So if someone said to you, "Is that what I'm supposed to do?" What would you say? Am I supposed to quit my job, Laura, and just Start doing what I want to do. I mean, oh no, I'm more conservative than yes. that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I—that's what I liked about—that's what I liked about your book because I could—I—I I don't. 
I don't know if it's courage or stupidity that right. that, that I don't, I'm not that. asking anyone to run away with the circus. Um, <laughs> I I will absolutely encourage you to okay. So what is it that you think you want to go to? And let's find some intermediary steps. Yeah. Of course, unless you tell me, well, hey, my you know I just became financially independent. My parents both passed away, and they left me millions of dollars. Okay, good. Then do what you want. Yeah. But most people don't have that luxury. But I find that um, most of the more radical transitions can happen with, within one to three years. Yeah. But there's action being taken all the way through. Yeah, and I, and that's what your book is about, and that's and that's what you do is right. It's the whole this whole process of finding out more about yourself, what your what your passions are, what your what your 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 intuitions, your dreams. And I think that what comes out of this is this whole thing about it not being a linear process, that when you project to yourself and out in the world, and a lot of this, Laura, through your exercise, is writing stuff down, is actually verbalizing it and memorializing it, is that when you do that, you're releasing something out into the world that you might get some help from the universe at large to fulfill that dream. That's that's sort of yes. it, right. Yeah, it's even on the exam that I give the coaches who take take my training. I said, you know, what is the prerequisite to seeing the coincidences? And the answer to the question is telling the truth. Yeah. That when people tell the truth about what they really want. It is like something gets released in the universe, and it's like, how we've been waiting for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, how about, I mean, there's a lot of exercises in your book, uh, and a lot of people, I mean, are obviously using electronic devices now to list things, to record things. I mean, what is your own method? Do you do you use a computer? Do you use little pads, or what do you, what do, you do? Um. I, you know, I've written all my books in computers, and I'm, I'm going to make a distinction here between the books and this kind of exploration. Um, my first laptop I bought when I wrote my first computer, uh, when I wrote my, I wrote, <laughs> when I wrote my first book, I bought my first laptop. Like I had never written anything in a computer before, yeah. um, and I find that quite intuitive and easy to do. But when it comes to my own personal growth, or I'm planning my business, or I'm brainstorming a speech, it's always on paper. And there is, I, I watched for articles about this in the New York Times. I can't give you any hardcore statistics, but I have seen research um, reported on about how there's something to writing it down. What happens in the brain of like, you think it, you have to put it through the brain to write it. You have to, the eyes have to read it and put it back in the brain. There's something to that process that almost puts an imprint on your search mechanism in your brain, you know, like now yeah. you're looking for that. Yeah, yeah, I love that because that that's exactly exactly the way I work. I cannot, um, I mean, I do a lot of my writing on, on computers, but I'm, when I'm at my best, I'm usually writing it in, in uh, longhand and then trying to understand what I wrote and then typing it, but but for the, for for goal setting and things like that, I always write it down, and I, I would agree with that kind of uh, with the the quasi research you you saw that that points that out because there's something there is that there's that connection uh, there's that honest connection that you're making 
when you're articulating it with longhand. That, at least, at least my, at least that's my thought. The millennials probably don't agree with that at all, but, but, <laughs> but, but to each their own, as they say. So, so we've quickly come to the end. We didn't cover everything, but we covered a lot. And I, I want to again uh, recommend this book uh, by Laura. Now what? 90 Days to a New Life Direction, because it's filled, I think, with very practical and inspirational advice on really sort of connecting us with where we are today, with where we might find greater fulfillment, but doing it in reality, not doing it just in our dreams at night. And Laura, uh, why don't you just tell folks, uh, I think you have a website or two, what your websites are and, and how they can get a hold of you if people want to follow up. Sure. I'll, I'll give you one to make it easier. Okay. Nowwhatcoaching.com. Cool. Nowwhatcoaching.com. And while we're still in book launch mode, you'll find some nice bonuses and, and so even some free uh, information and free teleclasses about oh. the subjects we've been talking about. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And, and once again... Uh, Laura's book is Now What? 90 Days to a New Life Direction. This is the updated and revised third edition. And if you're going to find or look for a book on the bookshelf or on Amazon uh, to sort of help you discover what you really want to do, this is one of the first books I would recommend. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.